I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. That, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm assuming everybody can hear me. I feel, I feel slightly like a cabin attendant uh, looking down the aisle, actually. I feel maybe it's partly that stoop that you all did when you checked for your wine glasses. It's it. Life jackets are under the seat. Um, but anyway, the exits are to your... No, actually, there are no exits. It's just that one. Um, no, that, that was a very, very, very generous introduction. And as I always feel at, at, at this point after a, a generous introduction, it really can only be a disappointment to you. So there is um, curse as well as blessing to, to words that generous... I uh, I have a fear of C- Castro-like murder by monologue, so I, I will s- speak for thirty to thirty-five minutes, but it, it will involve readings. And anyway, I hope the text will be sufficiently varied. But if any of you feel the need to leave, then that's that's absolutely fine. Uh, I spoke on. Tuesday at Intelligence Squared at Tabernacle, and within four minutes, a, a lady had at the very front had staggered out, apparently horrified by what had occurred. But my father, who's a lung physician, was sitting next to her, and apparently it turned out that she'd aspirated her water um, and, and thought she was going to die. So I, <laughs> I, I felt that was a tolerable excuse. Um, all right, so the old ways... I suppose the first thing to say about it is that it, it grew out of a, a, a place uh, rather than an idea as such and that that place was a a Holloway and those of you who've read my book The Wild Places will know that Holloway and it's a Holloway in in South Dorset near the little village of Chiddock um, North Chiddock to be be more precise and a Holloway comes from the Anglo-Saxon the Old English Holweg W-E-G it means a a hollow way and uh, our own London Holloway is a, is a version of such a place, though it's been urbanised it out of recognition as such. And Holloways are old sunken tracks, and they've been grooved down into the landscape by wheel run and by footfall and by water because they naturally become temporary rivers when it rains heavily. And some of them are very deep, and the deepest, uh, the deepest I've seen are 20 feet. You've all probably walked or even driven Holloways in soft stone counties. They are, they are sunk, and they are strange. They're more ravines than roads. Nobody can do much with them if they're not roaded already, because they're too deep to fill in. You'd have to effectively create another Holloway to fill the existing Holloway in. So they can't be farmed, 
So they're rather unaccountable, autonomous land, and as such, they caught my interest when I was looking for wilderness. They caught my interest for another reason, which was that in Rogue Mail, which is Geoffrey Household's cult novel from 1939, that whenever I mention its name, um, men in the audience nod enthusiastically and, and, and vigorously. Um, uh, features this particular Holloway, and Roger and I decided, Roger Deacon and I decided to go to Dorset together and, and look for this Holloway. It was it was a very strange and remarkable time for us, and we did not know that the Chiddock Valley was a, a Catholic enclave. And uh, um, during the recusancy, it was a place to which priests came over the channel to hold masses in the woods and in the Holloways and religion went feral or at least took to the land and people were pursued for their faith and indeed hunted down in that valley and then taken to Dorchester and subjected to shocking tortures and then executed. Uh, in Rogue Mail, those of you who've read it will know that a man who tries to shoot Hitler goes to ground in that Holloway. He takes refuge. Um, uh, Nazi henchmen are sent after him and he digs himself literally into the English soil to try and escape their attentions. So it is a landscape uh, that has, as it were, a repeat history of refuge and pursuit of concealment and surveillance. And we weren't really expecting this when we went, though of course we knew of Rogue Mail, but we, we found ourselves as really the latest iteration of those territorial imperatives. We ourselves found us unexpectedly found ourselves surveyed, strange figures appearing on the skyline, women, a woman dressed in red looking down upon us. And we found ourselves kind of urged to conceal ourselves from farmers and other walkers. And it, it, was, a, it was a strange, intense space. So you drop down into this overgrown tunnel um, with brambles that prevent your entry and the big ash trees have grown over the top to create this kind of, I think I called it a field mohican, this kind of linear wildwood that runs... Uh, and is, is indeed part of a system of such um, linear wildwoods. So we spent a strange time there, and I, I couldn't get it out of my head, and I still can't get it out of my head. Roger died n not long afterwards, as many of you who have read and loved his books know. Um, and I guess that was the, the last, as it were, uh, adventure that we went on together. So that, that Holloway, with its pleats and its repeats of time, really came to fascinate me and wouldn't leave me. And I wrote about it, and then Roger also wrote about it in his book, Notes from Walnut Tree Farm. And, and out of that, Holloway grew that chapter in the Wild Places, and out of that chapter in the Wild Places has eventually grown the old ways. Um, it, it is... I hesitate to sound grandiloquent. Um, it, is, it is the third book in a, in, a, in a loose, very loose trilogy of books about all of which are preoccupied with landscape and the imagination, how the ways we think about landscapes shape the ways we behave towards them, and the more complicated question of, of how we, we think with landscapes, or even more radically, how landscapes might think us. So the kinds of thoughts that we might be able to have in certain places that we cannot have anywhere else. Um, those three books have taken me 10 years. They've taken around 300,000 words of published work. They've taken a million or so words of unpublished waste paper work. Um, and uh, to, I guess, 2,000 miles or so of walking. And they've taken me from mountain top to beaten track. They've taken me from 
unmarked snow to a fascination with repeated chronic marks in the landscape, which is what a path is. It's a consensual act of mark-making sustained over a long period of time. And in the course of those three books, I've suffered frostnip and diarrhoea and midges and terrible hangovers and vast blisters and leeches and all sorts of other banal indignities of travel and so forth. But I've also seen things I'll never forget, and I've made friends that I hope will be with me um, forever. And the first one of those, those books really was interested in why we might be willing to die for a mountain, why people might be willing to risk life and limb to reach what is just an abstract point in space and why we develop feelings of devotion towards utterly indifferent geological structures and formations. And the second, The Wild Places, led me out looking for what wildness remained, but also, again, questioning need, why we, why we might need wilderness or wildness. There's a wonderful Wallace Stegner, great American novelist and historian. He writes something called The Wilderness Letter in, to a U.S. state official in the, ni- in the early 1960s. And he talks there about, he says, we might need wilderness available to us, even if we do nothing other than drive to its edge and look in. And I, I like that idea of unavailable landscapes, which are nonetheless necessary. And then The Old Ways, which explores, to me, even more fragile questions about cognition and place, about emotion and place. Uh, we have a very... We, we call our landscape and our places our environment now. It's an awkward word. I, I can see what duty it does, but it's one I tried not to use at any point in this book, though I think I probably did. We also talk about ecosystem service provision, um, uh, I am interested in the ecosystem service provision of metaphor, of ways of thinking, of ways of representing ourselves to ourselves. I'm interested in the ecosystem service provision of grace and beauty and peace and calm, but also other darker feelings. All of these experiences find a focus in this book in the figure of Edward Thomas, who is there at the beginning and is there powerfully at the end and who kind of ghosts in and out of the journeys as he, as I go and as he goes, his poetry is filled with doubles and he becomes my double or rather I his in the course of these journeys. And I think his life story, I'm interested in paradigmatic lives that are lived particularly as all lives are, but his really makes manifest these, some of these questions, makes them visible to us in ways that are otherwise impossible. So I decided, really inspired by the Holloway, to use this network of paths of old ways that crisscross this landscape, that crisscross its waters, and I will talk about water paths in a little while. And, uh, and I'll just read you some of their names because I kind of picked up the dialect, as it were, as I went. Some of them you'll know, Holloways, Pilgrim Tracks, Drove Roads, Greenways, Whiteways, Redaways, Trods, Lays, Dykes, Sands, Snickets, Ridings, Halter Paths, Carnies, Hear Paths, Fearways, Corpseways, Ghostways. It's this wonderful, highly particular, often regional language representing uh, this network of shadow paths that exists almost as the subconscious of our modern-day road network. I'll give you one example, Bossel. A Bossel, I now know, is is the path that rises up the scarp slope of the South Downs. How precise is that and how wonderful is that for a very particular kind of path doing a very particular kind of service? So I set out along them, really inspired by Thomas, who himself uses these paths as a means of navigation. He understands that they lead, as Wordsworth puts it, to the recesses of the country. He understands that they are ways of going not just across, but into 
place of navigating natural history, geology, cartography, weather, and self. Um, and I set out across them for these reasons, but also just for the pleasure of walking them. And I sometimes forget in my analytical drive um, quite how much I just enjoy being out and feeling the sun on my face and hearing birdsong. Um, and John Clare is a very good reminder of those kinds of simple pleasures. They give me joy as I proceed, he writes, of field paths. And that was the line I kind of, <laughs> yes, when my exegetical rabbinical instinct was at its strongest, I would quote Clare to myself and, uh, and recover some of that innocence. Um, five years later, it's manifested in uh, this book. Um, I guess I walked a thousand miles for this book, which isn't very far. I would guess I've walked seven or eight thousand miles in my life, which again is much less far than many people here. I, seven or eight thousand miles on paths. I mean, we all we all walk about four or five miles a day. So if you tot all that up, you're actually a real pedestrian athlete, all of you. Um, uh, I, I've walked double, treble, quadruple that distance in my mind because I don't sleep very well, and the only semi-reliable way I've found of getting back to sleep is is walking myself back to sleep in memory along paths that I've walked in actuality. My mum sent me this wonderful Leonard Cohen line, which I didn't, I, I didn't know she, the other day. She, the last refuge of the insomniac is a sense of superiority to the sleeping world, um, uh, which is great. Um, and it's one of those prize conditions, really. You, sort of, you say, oh, I'm an insomniac, as though you know, you, you've, you've got this intellectual gift, but actually it's just bloody awful. But... Um, but anyway, uh, I walk to sleep. Um, and I'm not, a, I'm not a great walker. I'm not a George Burrow who walked 120, 112 miles nonstop, fortified by an apple and a pint of beer to attend a, an interview with the um, Bible Translation Society to see if he could translate the Bible into Manchu, which he'd never studied before, but he got the job and did it within four weeks. Um, <laughs> I'm not a Richard Long who walked 33 miles a day for 33 days and created this extraordinary, you know, arguably one of the biggest artworks ever made using his feet as his pen nib. Um, but I do uh, believe in, in walking as a, as a means of knowing. Um, I don't believe that large-scale displacement in space is a necessary precondition for uh, discovery. Uh, the most amazing walk I made in this book is, took me two minutes and lasted 30 yards and it's told at the very end of the book. Um, places is deep as well as wide, and it's uh, I'm interested in depth. So, enough preamble. Let me tell you about some of these walks. Um, the first path I really walked was the Icknield Way, and the Icknield Way is maybe 1,500 years ago, and maybe five, uh, 1,500 years old, and maybe 5,000 years old, and it runs from somewhere in Norfolk to somewhere where it frays into the Ridgeway, somewhere north of the... Thames, the Western Thames. Um, Ivinghoe Beacon is seen as one of its possible endings, great chalk rampart. Um, but it also runs within a few miles of my house, and it was also a path that Edward Thomas walked and walked very intensely at one of the lowest points of his life almost exactly a century ago. And I left my house early in a, on a May morning uh, in seemingly limitless sunlight, and I followed a field path that I love, the path I've walked more than any other, I think, bordered by cowslips and that joins a Roman road which is now a green track and that Roman road joined, joins at the village of Linton the Icknield Way and that's where I picked up the Icknield Way um, I managed to fall off my bike within two miles of, I cycled the field path and the Roman roads before I walked the Icknield Way 
managed to fall off my bike within two miles and break two of my ribs. Um, I narrate this not in order to then allude to the heroism that subsequently followed, where I nonetheless walked, which I did nonetheless do, but that was nothing to do with fortitude. It was everything to do with embarrassment. I couldn't bear the thought of kind of sloping home, having left my sleeping family, saying, oh, I'll be back in... I don't know, the path is limitless. Um, and, uh, uh, and two miles later, I was, I was, I'd, I'd landed on my handlebars, having hit a clod of soil, and um, I just couldn't slope home. So anyway... Yeah, I discovered that you can walk reasonably well with 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 um, cracked ribs, but you can't sleep very well with them. But that's that was standard anyway, so that was fine. So I walked, and the the day, the, the days were. Lim- I mean, as you will know, when sun is high, um, really there's only four hours of of night in the south of England, and the skylarks were singing till midnight and they would wake me at four and I now know that the group noun for skylarks is alarm clock because there is no sleeping when they are singing and I was following the chalk really I came off the boulder clay and onto the chalk and you end long days on chalk looking like a ghost because you kick up the dust and you become coated and this weird spectrality uh, begins to clothe you and I was reminded of my embodiedness by my blisters and my terrible body odour and my cracked ribs, but there was a strange um, ghostliness to it, and I had wonderful nights out sleeping by a Neolithic barrow and not in it. I thought that would just be a little morbid. Um, uh, it, it was plundered. I mean, there's nothing left in it. So it was kind of collapsed, but, um, uh, but just, just finding... I love being out and finding places to sleep at the end of a long, dry day. Um, and I woke to see the south of England under a white mist, and you do realise what Thomas says, which is that the, the uplands of southern England can be understood as a kind of mountain chain of their own, or a series of atolls, he says, a kind of archipelago. Uh, and that really, when you see it in a sea of mist, you, you understand that. Um, and I'll just read you a little bit from the Icknield Way, the end of the Icknield Way chapter, or an end of the Icknield Way chapter. So I've been walking for several days. Um, towards evening... Miles on from the Hazelwood, my body settled into the rhythm of the walk, and I felt for an hour or so in that apparently endless day as if the way were endless too, ribboning whitely away across the land, and that if I kept to it, there was no reason why I could not walk all the way to the Atlantic. It wasn't until last light that I reached Ivinghoe Beacon, whose great chalk summit is crowned by an Iron Age hill fort. I scrambled up to one of its grassed ramparts, sat facing westwards, and let the setting sun soak me with its warmth. I took off my shoes and socks. Across the land, millions of bindweed flowers completed their final revolutions of the day. Buttercups returned their last luster to the sun. The wallabies of whipsnade settled to sleep, and the day slowed to its close. Sitting there in that buttery sunshine, the many different names of the path that I had heard, Eichen, Ichen, Ichen, Aiken, Iceny, Icening, Ikeneld, Eikeneld, Eikenild, Ickleton, Ickleton, Ickneeld, seemed to melt and combine such that the way seemed not like a two-dimensional track but part of a greater manifold looping and weaving in time even as it appeared to run singularly onwards in space and I remembered Thomas's line I could not find a beginning or an end of the Ickneeld way in the half hour or so that I sat there other walkers joined me on the hilltop for sunset a man carrying a small dog bundled up in a tartan blanket a middle-aged couple laughing as they climbed and slipped up the steep side of the beacon. A man in a suit who had parked his car by the roadside and walked up the hill with his body held straight and upright. 
and an elderly woman who trailed to one of the ramparts and then stood with her eyes closed, gazing blindly at the last sun. What a strange congregation of votaries we made, none known to the other, foreign as dark fish in ink. Um, and the Ignil's Way, that, that idea of the ribboning path, um, the dot that implies perpetual recurrence in, in mathematics, was the entry point to this incredible network of paths that I began to discover and have some sense of. Paths connect, that's what they do, that's their reason for existing. They join place to place and they relate people to people. And there is that wonderful line from the Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, knowing how way leads on to way, he says. Well, I know a bit of that too now, and we all know a bit of it, because that really joined me into this network. And along the way, I, I met a wonderful, strange people and very ordinary people. Um, the book is filled with people. I wanted it. It's a book about meetings. It's a book about learning from walking, but also from walkers. And it's filled with pilgrims and stravagas and dawdlers and dreamers and mappers and cartographers and archaeologists and poets and sculptors, but also just everyday people met along the path with whom I talked and from whom I learnt. And many walks grew out of many walks and many people led to many different paths. Uh, I thought that the best way to illustrate this was not to list them aridly to you, but just to read uh, a little. And I have a show and tell, which I wasn't expecting, but uh, is a very wonderful synchrony with this evening. So the book is divided into four parts. The first occurs on the southeast of England, starting with the Ichneald Way, then moves up to the northwest of Scotland, the Outer Hebrides, and the Cairngorms, where I have various connections and have spent much time. It then goes abroad to Palestine, to Spain, and to the not quite the Himalayas, the very easternmost outworks, I suppose, of what, what was the, the Himalayas in, in Sichuan. Uh, and then it returns to the south of England and the chalk again. So I, I will read... We've had a bit of England, so for, for national equilibrium, I will give you a bit of Scotland. Um, and this is... I, I walked across Lewis to Harris uh, in the Outer Hebrides, started on the West Coast and had a wonderful multi-day walk, sleeping in these glorious beehive shielings, which are like little little uh, chapels, I suppose, corbels, chapels, mortared by turf, beautiful structures, Pictish architectural origin, probably probably 19th century in manufacture, these ones. But they're in the middle of nowhere. They're these weird little shelters in the great, great expanses of the Hebridean deer forests, which are forests in the sense that you can hunt there. They're legal designation rather than an arboreal one. Uh, and I walked across and I ended up knocking on the door of a man called Steve Dilworth. And Ian Sinclair wrote a wonderful, wonderful piece about Dilworth many years ago in the LRB. And I know Ian a little, and Ian introduced me to Steve's work and said, well, you know, you're up in the Ad Hebrides, go knock on Steve's door. Being very English, I sort of thought, I can't possibly knock on a chap's door if I haven't, you know, sent him gifts in advance and notified him of my exact time of arrival. That wasn't relevant, um, and I was welcomed off the road by Steve for these extraordinary days. So he's a sculptor, 
and I'll say a little about him, and then I'll show you this object. On the southeastern coast of the Isle of Harris, in a three-house village called Gearcrab, behind a fuchsia hedge in a chilly, thin-walled workshop hanging by a meat hook from a rafter, is a human skeleton. Its 206 bones are held together by sinews of braided seagrass, which, as they pass through the vertebrae, are knotted alternately left over right and right over left. Stitched onto the bones are patches of meat cut from a dead calf, which together form a rough overbody. At the time of their first sewing, when they had been recently preserved using a solution of formaldehyde and sodium fluoride, administered with a horse syringe and prepared according to a mix ratio perfected by the members of a mid-1920s zoological expedition to the Amazon, the meat patches were still plumply muscular. They have dried out over time, though, and wizened, their fibres bunching such that their texture is now that of well-used hawser. Set within the hollows of the skeleton are a gnarled heart, a liver, two dried eyes and a windpipe, all also retrieved from the same calf. The skeleton is bound by seagrass ropes and its trussed hands are outstretched before it as if in a gesture of prayer or supplication. From its skull flares a fright wig of horsehair, black and blonde, the strands dropping down to the scapulae. Steve Dilworth acquired the skeleton one day in 1978 when he contacted an anatomical suppliers in the well-named Gravesend and, posing as a professor of anatomy, bought the skeleton off them for £100, which was then more money than he could easily afford. The bones arrived in a box at the 15th century cottage near Sirencester where he was then working part-time as a gardener. He spent weeks drilling and re-articulating the bones using marum and cord and weeks more filling the skeleton with calf organs and clothing it in calf flesh, and weeks more noosing and binding it. The result? His sacrificial victim, his voodoo fetish, his grau ballet man, his friend, he named the hanging figure. As Steve and his wife Joan moved around the country, the hanging figure moved with them, and eventually in 1985 they washed up on the Isle of Harris in the township of Gearcrab, where the three of them have lived happily ever since. I knocked on Steve's door after my crossing of the Lewisian Moor, footsore, sweaty and faintly apprehensive. There were shuffling and banging noises from inside the house. The door opened, a figure filled the frame, a hand of welcome was extended. Steve was wearing a matrix-length coat and a pair of slippers. Tall and fair-haired, with high cheekbones and bristling yellow eyebrows, he looks like a warlock or a Viking raider. And if you only knew Steve from his work and from his appearance, you'd be intimidated by him. Imagine him severe and forbidding, but in fact he's good-natured and clownish, which is a relief, for a shaman who took himself seriously would be insufferable. Within a few minutes of arriving, I was at the kitchen table with a coffee in one hand and a gin and tonic in the other, telling Steve and Joan about the night in the beehive shielings and the discovery of Manus's path, which is the path I'd been searching out. A stuffed guillemot regarded me quizzically from on top of a wall-mounted speaker. On a three-foot-deep southern windowsill sat what looked like the bronze skull of a praying mantis, two feet long and with bulging eyes. Stacked under the window were dozens of empty bird's egg display cases, dark pine, glass-topped, segmented by fine wooden partitions with cotton-wool nests, ready to receive each blown dead egg, and copper-plated name cards to identify the species, Sardinian goldfinch, greenshank, red-billed tern. The Dilworths came to the Outer Hebrides because it was one of the few places in Britain where they could afford to buy or beg or borrow or build a house. And it turned out that Harris also supplied Steve with the raw materials for his art. He found himself on a coast where he could walk the rack line each day to see what it held. 
and where he could live cheaply in a landscape of animal rituals, megaliths, weather dramas, and excellent malt whiskies. When he first suggested we move to Harris, I thought he said Paris, Joan remarked. (laughs) So of course I agreed straight away. It took me a while to work out my mistake. (laughs) The best description I've heard of Steve's art is his own. I have spent my life making ritual objects for a tribe that doesn't exist. Among the materials he uses in his work are the skulls, beaks, bodies, eyes, skins and wings of herons, wrens, guillemots, gannets, woodcock, fulmer, swans, owls, sparrowhawks, buzzards, hooded crows, puffins, sand eels, tallow, lard, blubber, sperm, seawater collected during equinoctial gales, freshwater gathered from a deep well, still air gathered in a chapel, storm air gathered in the overhang of a boulder. And that brings me, with just that taste, that, that gobbit of Hebridean Gothic brings me to this object which I've been given recently by a dear friend who's very involved in the making of this book and I've been given it today in fact and it is one of Dilworth's sculptures and uh, it took my breath away so I just thought it's very heavy I just thought I couldn't not really show you this evening to give you an idea I say somewhere that all Dilworth's objects are so powerful in their form that they make you either want to touch them or avoid them Um, and I still haven't worked out quite what the case is with this one. So um, this is um, encased, encased in here is a starling. And if you look in, it looks like a barn owl actually, if you see it in lateral profile. <laughs> but if you see it straight on, it becomes a stranger bird. And you realise that these bronze claws turn the wrong way, that these are not the legs of the bird, they're the legs of some other presence. And if you gaze in through these little eye holes, you see the preserved eyes of, and feathers of the starling that is there. <coughs> what you can't see is here, but in, inside this little notch, you can see the, the open beak of the starling. And what's holding it open is a tiny file of black Indian ink. And what is also inside here is a poem written by the person who gave it to me, which I will never, ever be able to read and will never know the contents of. Uh, Because, as with so much of Dilworth's work, to know what is inside it, you would need to destroy the object itself. And he is fascinated by inner space and by kinds of faith. Um, The rock is dolerite, beautifully fine-grained. And on the back, by pure geological happenstance... You won't be able to see this, but is, is, a, is a, a stain in the rock which has the shape and form of a key, um, which you may just be able to see as a kind of blonde handle piece. And then, anyway, um, the person who's given it to me is worried that it's, it's so dark in its presence, particularly this kind of gagging India ink, uh, that, that I shouldn't keep it in my, in my home. So I'm going to keep it going to keep it somewhere slightly peripheral to, to life for a while until I see whether it's benign or malevolent. Uh, I'm just going to... Right, I told you about my Castro-like tendencies. Um, I, will, I will just say f- five minutes more. Can you, can you tolerate that? Five, so you have no option but to answer yes to that. <laughs> 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um. Actually, it does. It does lead in well because the the the, the book's method, I suppose, is uh, well. I don't. It's kind of hyper empirical. Um, there is a, um, a an accumulation of detail that is um, attestifies to the sorts of not vigilance exactly, but engagement that I I find um, in in walking through walking. But there are certain events in the book which are reported largely in that empirical mode but which are not assimilated into frames of explanation that, that, that work for the rest of the book. So four or five very strange things happened to me in the course of the walking and um, there was a you'll have to read the book to find out. Anyway, they're very strange things. Footprints that led into very dangerous territory that were human but couldn't have been human because they descended impossible terrain. Um, screams in in a place that sounded human and that when I then researched the law of that place, Chanctonbury Ring on the South Downs, accorded absolutely perfectly with an accumulation of similar experiences over the centuries, but which I had not been prepared for by, by that reading um, and others. Um, and I guess that, that sense of discovery, of, of, of walking as, as discovery and of learning... Well, is very strong in the book, and I, as I say, I learned I learned a great deal from people, and I learned a great deal from from place as well. And there's a beautiful etymology which I discovered, which I quote early on in the book, which is that if you take our verb to learn, and you trace it back, and back and back, and you follow its roots in both senses, back through the thickets of uh, of uh, old German, and you follow it back to the speculative shadowlands of Proto-Indo-European, you discover a, a, a root for it, an origin for it, as it were, that connects it with path following. To, to learn is way back to find or follow a track. Um, and that sense of learning was and remains strong in the book. It's heuristic in that sense. Um, and I felt great hospitality, and I thought hard about, about how we make sense of ourselves through landscape. Uh, and then I sat down to try and write this book, um, I think it fails in lots of ways, but um, but what I realised that I needed to try and do was write a book that um, pleated and repeated in the ways that I had experienced time and image and thought doing across the many paths and the many years that I'd been writing it. So I wanted to find a book that was structured by pattern rather than by plot and that bent back upon itself and performed certain kinds of Cairn lines and alignments and patterns that would become visible, I hoped, to the reader as they read through and begin to trope the, book, the book's own methods. Um, that's what I tried, and I, uh, I, have, uh, I have had uh, various reports on its um, success or otherwise. So if you read it and you think it's a total jumble, um, I, I entirely respect that point of view. Um, uh, but there is an aspiration to um, a pattern that... Uh, um, that is that that was present in the writing, 
but that's obviously beyond my its effects are beyond my legislation or my or my veto. Um, I'll just end with a postscript and then open to questions, which is that I went back to the Holloway um, last autumn with a man called Stanley Donwood, who some of you may know as uh, he's an artist. He's most famous for doing all of Radiohead's cover art over the years. Um, he creates very scary teddy bears, big fangs, um, lots of T-shirts, and Kid A and the Bends and all of those iconic covers. They're all Stan's work. And, and, a, and, a, and a young writer and artist called Dan, Dan Richards. And they had become fascinated by the idea of the Holloway, and Stan had begun to draw it in, in, in abstract, as it were. It had, it had wormed its way in as a, as a rabbit hole and a rifle barrel into his mind as an image, and he began to, to work it. So he wanted to see it. Um, and we went back and re- sort of re-performed in pantomime the expedition that Roger and I had led. So there was a lot more cider, there was a lot more rain, there was a lot, even less sleep. There was a lot of silliness, um, but a, a great deal of strangeness too, it was the last pleating, I suppose, and I, I went expecting not to see Roger and not to see myself in any way, and I didn't really. Um, but I did find the holly um, branches or sort of stems that Roger and I had kind of whittled as staffs, and, and their, their nubs were still there, and the little the, the, the cuts we'd made with our knife were still there, these sorts of little hollowways of their own, and... There were pl- I could see the places where we had slept, and, and in lots of ways the landscape kept memory, and in other ways it refused it, and that that was entirely in keeping with what I'd experienced. But it, it became another a further layering on top of the strange time of the the Holloway, the Holloway that had begun all of those journeys. So we're we're making a a, a strange book about it, which a very small book that we'll have 277 copies and that Stan has melted the lead for, bought the lead, melted the lead, cast the type he's a real purist about these things, you can tell set the type and has now printed this thing using a wonderful ancient press and and has illustrated it and I haven't seen it yet but anyway we have, we have made a kind of final layer to the Holloway, the Holloway's geology, so there we are. I've said more than enough. Um, I'd love to talk um, less. But thank you very much. Thank you so much. Let's turn this monologue into a dialogue, and there's a question already in the front row. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk. It sounds as if happenstance and humanity lead you, but do you also use maps and ordnance maps and local maps and something practical and anonymous? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, um, uh, oat cakes um, and sardine. Not 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 as maps. It's not like haruspication or anything. I don't open up the oat cake and um, uh, no. Of course, I walk I walk with maps and and this this. Um, this is absolutely... Well, I did not want to write it as a time travel back to an imagined past. Um, I think I... I mean, I, Andrew Marr was catechizing me about nostalgia, and I said if I'm nostalgic for anything, it's for the Cretaceous, um, which I think is a... you know, I think nostalgia is an interesting 
and not necessarily conservative response anyway. But anyway, I, if, if I'm nostalgic for anything, it's, it's for about 200 million years ago, um, which I think is, is legitimate. Um, but uh, so it's actually a, a, a book whose method, and I hope prose is filled with modernity and contemporaneity, and I walked with maps and bivy bags and sleeping bags and, you know, just the, as, as light and as basic as I could when I walked. Um, and uh, and I'd, I'd love maps. I mean, the, the, many of my books contains peons to maps, and uh, the 1 to 25,000 Ordnance Survey is one of the two great um, cartographic achievements of, of, uh, of, of modernity, with the other being the Swiss topo, of, um, uh, which is also military in origin and is utterly beautiful in its precision. But if you look at those maps, any part of England and Wales will be thick with paths, green on the 1 to 25, pink on the 1 to 50. You'll all have done it, you'll all have unfolded them and seen this incredible network. Do the Holloways have any links to the ley lines? Um, no. Uh, no is the short answer. Uh, there's a missing chapter, or rather a suppressed chapter from this book, which is all about Watkin, Watkins, Alfred Watkins, and the, and the ley lines. And I walked um, from Herefordshire across, in, across the Black Mountains and into uh, East Wales, Lantoni, Priory, and so forth, um, following Watkins's straight lines, his old straight tracks. And I discovered what many of Watkins's detractors pointed out in the early 20th century, which is that Neolithic man really wouldn't have walked in very, very straight lines across the landscape because it's extremely inefficient and rather painful. And Watkins himself tried to prove to his detractors that it was, as it were, physiologically efficient to walk in straight lines up steep slopes rather than going in zigzags, and he broke his ankle. Um, uh, but he, you know, he was indefatigable. This was not sufficient proof of, of, of the, the foolishness of his theories. But the, the, the ley lines are fascinating as a wish fulfillment of an early 20th century desire for prehistoric free marketry. So they are basically an economic vision of a very well-organized free trade network of uh, enlightened bourgeois Stone Age men. Um, and and I, 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 am, I admire the, the commitment of their lunacy. And they have spawned this incredible fringe culture that has spun out in so many ways. Could you tell us a bit about specifically about the pilgrims' ways? And you mentioned uh, Spanish. Yes. Um, well, I'm, uh, um, I've written a long essay about this for The Guardian, which will come out on Saturday. So I'd, uh, anyway, you can read it at fuller length there should you be so moved. But uh, there is an incredible pilgrim, pilgrimage revival currently underway across faiths and across countries and um, it, uh, a simple statistic will give you an example of that. The Santiago de Compostela route has La Autentica, I don't speak Spanish, that's probably a poor pronunciation, which is the Certificate of Completion. Um, in 1984, I think 2,500 people received that. In 2007, 270,000 people received that. The 2007 Kumela um, in India was so numerous in those involved that it had to be satellite photographed by the Indian Space Agency so that the government could improve its crowd control for subsequent mailers. Um, it, it, it's extraordinary what is happening. And Rowan Williams talked about this at Christmas and said it's he thinks it's to do with people getting away from the clutter of institutions, but he also talked about a, a, a desire for a relationship with place, and he says his definition of pilgrimage was um, a journey in which place works upon the pilgrim. Um, 
Uh, Rebecca Solnit defines pilgrimage as a search in a search for something intangible. And of course, not all pilgrimages occur on foot, but many of them do because arduousness is a constituent part, ideally, of the pilgrimage. Though, coming back to Spain, the English route, which is one of the many routes that flow into Santiago, is the one that goes from, I think, is it Vic, uh, Vico, Vido? Anyway, there's a... Sorry? The wet one. Yeah, it's 60 miles. They would roll off the boat drunk stumble for 60 miles to Santiago and receive their authentica. But the French and the Spanish, you know, they, they, they come for thousands of miles. So English walkers in Spain, of whom there have been many and of whom I became a kind of late and, and lame example, um, have, uh, have, have, have a, 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 a reputation for um, laziness. Um, apart from V.S. Pritchett, who writes Marching Spain in the 1930s, where he just he, he marches Spain, he walks enormous distances... And he talks again and again about Spanish men sort of sitting in the shade and looking at him and kind of doing the kind of sort of, <laughs> earth are you up to? Um, there's so much to be said about sacralized terrain, spiritual geographies, which com- completely fascinate me. Um, um, uh, Avebury um, is, this, is the, the whole area around Avebury is, is the most sacralized landscape I've entered in this country and that's um, uh, three more than 3,000 years old somebody will be able to get I may have got that date um, drastically wrong and paths are involved in that theater that that devotion um, and you you approach these sites there are I mean there's a lot of speculation in terms of how they were used the, the cursuses the processional routes and the paths which turn and give certain views and um, amazing. Um, I was going to ask about um, how you, the decisions in in organising the book. I mean, you talked about sort of re- re- repeats and pleats. Um, I suppose at a sort of prose level, and then at sort of higher up level, H- how you decided you sort of went. You, you've got England and then Scotland. Um, Spain, India, and sort of back to England. I may have missed one or two, but um, the decisions sort of involved in organising the book in that way, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about. Um, Thank you for the question. Um, I mean, one way to describe the emergence of the book is that it was was chance. It was junctions reached and turnings taken that depended on friendships made and um, relationships... Um, brokered and paths suggested, and in that sense, um, in that sense, it is uh, it was con- it was contingent. Um, there there was no plan when I set out, other than that it it felt clear that walking these paths was a way to begin to explore some of the things I wanted to explore. Um, and and after that, the book began to take its own form. And um, uh, uh, you know, one one result of that is a is um, a wanderingness to it, a, you know, a rambly aspect to it. Um, it was really afterwards that I began to realise and see a lot of the repetitions that had occurred. And, and, and repetition is often seen as an enemy of writing. Um, and uh, I, I, it took me some while to work out that repetition might actually be uh, my subject and that, that there might be a way of, of, of working that into the book as a, as a virtue rather than a fault or an aspired to virtue rather than a fault. Um, 
but very random. Um, it's kind of follow-on question in a way. I wanted to um, ask whether... So, in some cases, you're writing about places like England or Scotland, which, in which, um, or about which, you know a lot, and and your audience knows a lot, and the language and literature and history of those places are things that you can rely on people um, <clears throat> having an awareness of, and just the names are things that people will know and will have a resonance will have a resonance for, for your readership. I wanted to ask whether your, how your experience was writing about those kind of places and then compare your experience when you're writing about Sichuan. Hmm. Um, well, I, basically, I labour under ignorance almost everywhere. Um, and in many ways, I'm as ignorant on the Outer Hebrides uh, as I am in Sichuan. Um, there are certain certain of the chapters which I've walked, you know, where I've walked and been and known for a long, long time. Like the Cairngorms, I probably know better than I know Cambridgeshire. Um, so it is true there are places where I feel more familiar, and, and there's a chapter walking over the Cairngorms to my grandfather's funeral, which is really about how memory gets chronically inscribed in places and can then be accessed by walking it up to some degree. And... Um, uh, um, but in in the, the much stranger places, I re, um, I wanted to catch at strangeness and not feign um, knowledge, and I wanted to be where I could with people who knew those places very well or who had strong angular relations with them for some reason or another. So really, I I try there to sort of become the pair of eyes that's sort of sitting on the shoulder of the other walker, um, and and to to notice, but not really to comment or judge so much. I mean, particularly in Palestine, I felt absolutely unempowered to make political judgments, though there obviously there are, there's politics involved in the very selection of where I was and who I was with. But, um, but I wanted to let the places and the people speak, speak for themselves as much as I could and not, not worry about making the reader feel familiar or grounded because that wasn't what I was experiencing very much. There is a long, long glossary in the book uh, which runs to many pages because I kind of fetishize specialized languages for places. So uh, that that is a concession to hospitality. Um, I was wondering if, um, sort of in your relationship to landscape, um, if you'd ever felt sort of the impulse to collect things, to bring things back, to do, say, I don't know, Emily Dickinson goes out and brings flowers back and presses them in a book, or Rousseau collects herbs and makes his little herbarium, and, and whether sort of writing for you is a, a form of collecting in some way of bringing the landscape back and sort of preserving it in a sort of an album of some kind. Uh, Nabokov, has, Nabokov says, all my novels begin as collections of pebble and fluff on the table. Um, Ch- Chatwin talks about writing as a kind of collection, and you can see that in his uh, cubist, te- tessellated style. Um, and yes, I, I, I hoard bits of language and bits of place. And uh, The Wild Places is really a book made of, of and about collection. And indeed, the, the, the end of the book is it, ta- it takes a reckoning based on found objects. Um, 
So that, that book is thick with collection and not curation exactly, but there are also several objects get returned to to where they were found. And so I, uh, I think Prince Charles, yeah, who I have some sympathy for, um, he he brings back stones from everywhere he goes and then sort of arranges them. So slightly wanted to break the Charles paradigm. Um, but also it all emerges from the Wunderkammer, the Baroque colonial collection whereby you miniaturize your empire and organize it and taxonomize it and then and then there it is fixed in possessive miniature so i i think i wanted to find ways of collecting but but not possessing if that makes some sense and doesn't sound too bien pensant Um, yes, I'm very excited that the third book has come. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you related or reacted in any way to Max Zivolt's The Rings of Saturn, and I also wondered if you ever met him. Um, th- well, thank you for the question. Um, he's a... Uh, I'm very, as it were, proud of my influences. I don't see them as things to be suppressed. Um, I, I see writing as a convergence of flows rather than some original spring um, and he's a strong uh, flow uh, but as are very unlike people like you know Bruce Chapman who clearly you know they would have hated each other how they would have hated each other um, I don't think I'd have liked Chapman very much um, I sometimes think about people I'd like to walk with um, Patrick Lee Fermer would be one um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge would be another Bruce Chapman would not be one. Um, and I suspect uh, uh, W.G. Zobelt, who I never met, would probably not be one either. I thought Will Self wouldn't be one, but then I went for a long walk with him, and he was incredibly good company and unbelievably rude about other people, but rather <laughs> rather gentle with me. Um, and we'd be having a lovely conversation about the Ad Hebrides, which he loves, and then he'd, the phone would go, and he'd, say, he'd literally pick it up and say, fuck off. Um, and I'd say, who was that? And he said... Oh, I, I did. Some man I spoke to you this morning for the first time. Um, uh, he was lovely and scabrous. Um, so, uh, so Ze- no, Zebelt is. I mean, uh, in a way, any I think any writer on place and landscape writes in the shadow of Zebelt. Now, I think his achievement was so vast and so influential, uh, so so powerfully influential that it's a kind of contagion, and it's very it's very hard to to, to um, immunise yourself against it. Um, so I was writing a book about Zebelt, and I'm very glad that I am n- no longer doing that. At the beginning of your talk, you spoke about trying to keep your analytical mind at bay through John Clare. And I was wondering, a bit later in your talk, you were talking about the proto-Indo-European origin of the, the, the concept of the word or the semantic root of learning as was it path following yeah and then i thought about also later in your answers you've talked about you know an enlightenment project of sort of collecting stones and but what what it really put me in mind of and i checked your index he's not in there is the the project of the the work of the thinking of heidegger late heidegger you know, Holzweger walking in the woods and all, where he's actually interested, I take it, in a, a level of awareness which precedes 
subject, an object, and which takes up the kind of etymology that you are exploring, but in a way which is about disclosing um, being or disclosing a level which precedes, if you like, analytical thinking, but is very true and also is a root of poetry and a kind of thinking that is immersed in objects or, because we can't use the word object, having preceded it, but is immersed in the world. And I, I see Wittgenstein gets in there very, in a very Cambridge way, <laughs> but um, also in a very Cambridge way, Heidegger's not in there. <laughs> why not? <laughs> uh, well, uh, that, thank you for such, uh, to me, fascinating question. Um, uh, Heidegger was in there. There was a whole chapter about Heidegger and Wittgenstein, um, which, uh, no, well, you shouldn't, uh, you, no reason to see, no, no, it was in there. There's no reason why you should see its absence. Um, it, it, was, uh, it, it was another suppression uh, or, or ed- edition. Um, and uh, I, I'm fascinated by Heidegger. Um, it, it is a Cambridge tradition to, uh, um, to, to disavow Heidegger for all the, all the reasons that most people will know, those um, brown shirt campfire meetings in the Black Forest in the mid-1930s and all, all of that. Um, uh, so I was glad you said late Heidegger and not, uh, not mid-Heidegger. Um, I, I'm fascinated by his uh, commitment to the idea that there is a... Uh, a, a kind of prosody of cognition that there might be a rhythm of knowing that precedes um, uh, conscious uh, uh, processing um, I'm also f- absolutely fascinated by the way in which the, the language of landscape infiltrated wrong verb, the language of landscape um, manifested in his late essays not as adornment but as substance and that, that movement from, uh, of metaphor from adornment to substance uh, absolutely fascinates me. So his poetics of philosophy, especially in the idea of the lichtung, the clearing, that you arrive at the end of the forest path, and the forest path may be the, the path which has been cut by the woodsman, so reaches an end, or it may be the forest path that continues, and I mean, we don't, we don't know. And you reach the lichtung, which is the clearing, but which is also the point of illumination, um, as, I mean, you obviously know lots more th- uh, than I do about this, but I, I became fascinated by Wittgenstein's retreat to Norway, on the Sonja Fjord and his, his, the, the relationship of landscape to his philosophical discourse and Heidegger's retreat to um, Tottenauberg and, and, um, and the Black Forest and the, the relationship of landscape to his philosophical discourse. But the book was 200,000 words when I gave it to my editor and Heidegger was one of the guys who got the chop. Time for maybe one or two more. Um, I wonder if you'd say um, something more about the the walking in the water off the Essex coast. And I wondered if that was the kind of pottiest walk you've ever done. Pottiest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I I I followed a track called the Broomway, which is a tidal path which runs off the Essex coast, leaves the coast at Wakering Stairs, and 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 runs northeast and then curves back into to Foulness Island. And it, it's, an, it's a line of hard sand, which means that at low tide, because the incline of the flats is so shallow that the tide goes a very, very long way out, that you can walk it. And you walk on water. Um, this, is, this is not the Jesus photo, but um, 
this is you you are on a kind of mirror world you are walking on an inch of water and you 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 stand in your own reflection like a playing card king and you are at once kind of intensely aware of yourself and also multiply reflected and diffused and it's it was an utterly extraordinary walk as well as one filled with um the the the, the paranoias you know will the, will the moon hold the tide out yes was the answer i kept giving to myself um have i got my tide calculations right maybe was the answer i kept giving to myself and um uh, uh and i walked it with a very tall friend of mine who's six foot seven and who became therefore um nearly nearly um 14 feet when he was doubled as as reflection um and it was it was silly and uh not dangerous silly because it wasn't dangerous because we knew when the tide was coming back in but utterly strange and also a kind of time travel because that that land out there off the east coast of england was doggerland was a mesolithic open um territory which was in, inhabited and hunted and um uh, and and we dredge up artifacts from it and is at once our past and our future because when the cycles turn and the ice and the water is locked up in ice again that doggerland will be will be visible again so it was like many of these walks a kind of time time travel so you move sideways in space and backwards or around in time um when you uh, return from your travels uh do you have any uh, discomfort within yourself uh entering into an urban and modern environment well i should say that i'm never away very long this is a book of many of many short journeys rather than one epic one i'm you know it's not a it's not a thousand miles on foot without ever coming home so i'm i'm rarely away for more than uh sometimes a, a day a few days five days two weeks um three weeks i think at the very most um so i don't i don't want to give the impression this is some great escape it isn't it's a series of brief interludes um uh so that that sense of reentry is is minimized um but i i miss miss my family very much and i'm very happy to see them when i back with them which i am you know for 300 days of the year anyway um and uh, but the, but i mean any anyone who's been in one kind of landscape and then comes back to another there is that strange slight flicker around the edges of things that feeling of of a of an of a slightly alien world having been entered and it works both ways you leave the city and you go to the moor and the moor is strange and flickering and you leave the moor and you come to the city and the city is strange and flickering too for a little while Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello Fresh.